This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 29th, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Today's lesson, Jesus continues on this theme that, that we're always so comfortable with him talking about, our money. Um, Apparently he thought it was important. But we had the answer from the quiz last week. Remember what the, was the root of all evil? It was in today's epistle lesson. The love, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, actually, even not just some, but many. And so Jesus tells this parable to help people understand why that is and what that's about. And it's not that money is bad. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just there. I mean, it's a thing. It's a commodity. And, and Paul even commends people who are rich to say, you know, be generous, you know, do good works with what God's given you, that he gave it to you for our comfort and enjoyment. And so if we have money, we should be glad about that. We should just use it appropriately. And in this parable that Jesus tells about, he talks about a rich man who it says that lived lavishly wearing purple robes. Now, purple was the most expensive kind of dye that was out there in those days. So in modern terms, it would sort of be like saying that there was a man who shopped at Saks and Nordstrom's and Tiffany's who feasted on, on a, a, his personal chef's you know, love, sumptuous dinners, gourmet dinners every night. While outside of his gated community, um, there was a homeless man who laid by the gate. And the homeless man's name was Lazarus. And the rich man was doing great, but Lazarus wasn't. He had you know, begun to have um, all sorts of vitamin deficiencies and all, even to the point that his uh, skin had started to form ulcers. You know, he had sores on them. And, and the rich man doesn't seem to notice him at all. Doesn't say the rich man hates him. Doesn't say he has animosity for him. Doesn't say he blames him. He just doesn't see him. He kind of goes in and out of the gate in his chauffeur-driven limousine and never notices that he's laying there. You know, never even notices that he's there. And it's, it's kind of obvious that he's making a big point here because then he goes on to talk about the wild dogs. Now, these would be feral dogs, you know, dogs that just live in the wild on their own, who probably also are very hungry and starving. And you would think that if they have a weak person like Lazarus who can't even move, that they would probably attack him and, and they eat him. But even they take compassion on him. They feel bad for the guy. So they, they lick his sores to try to get him clean. And even the dogs have more compassion on this Lazarus than does this rich man. Well, they both die. And Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom, which was the Jewish equivalent of, of what we call heaven now, um, before we started using that term. But they, they're gathered to the, the great patriarch, um, Abraham, the Jews are. And the rich man ends up in, in Hades, in the place of torment. You know, and, and he's there, and he, there are all these flames, and it's hot, and he's, you know, he's just in agony. And so he looks across this great chasm, and he, he sees that Abraham up there with Lazarus, and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and come cool my tongue with a drop of water, for I'm, you know, these flames are tormenting me. Now, I have to give the rich man credit for one thing. I think I'd wanted more than a drop of water on somebody's fingertip if I were in his shape, but, but he, he seems to be content with that. But it's interesting. Who does he address? Abraham. 
He still isn't noticing Lazarus, except that we know that he knows who he is because he knows his name. And so he calls his name. You know, says, send him. But it's obvious that at this point, he still sees Lazarus as, as an object, as a, you know, not a real person with feelings or anything else, just as somebody you know, who needs to help out. You know, and so he wants him to send him over. And, and Abraham says, well, you know, I'm really sorry about that, but we, we can't do that you know, because between you and us, there's this great chasm that's fixed and you know, no one can cross back or forth. So there's, there's no way that that could be done. And then as a sort of word of comfort to the guy, which probably wasn't much comfort at all, he says, try to remember, though, that in, in, you know, in your earthly life, you had it really good. You know, and, and, and so Lazarus had it terrible. And so now he's, he's getting the good things now, and, and you're getting the opposite now, just like Lazarus did then. I don't know if I was a rich man, that would help much. But. So the rich man, being used to negotiating, apparently, says, well, if, if you can't do that, at least send Lazarus, again, send Lazarus, you know, this object. Send him to my father's house to warn my brothers about what will happen. And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets, or the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. You know what? Just all they got to do is read it. It's in there. I mean, it says that. And you can almost see him saying, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, we, they read that stuff in church, but nobody pays that much attention to it. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, yeah, we know it's there, but I mean, good grief, what are you talking about? And so he, he says, you know, but, but if somebody came back from the dead, then they'd pay attention. They'd listen and they'd repent. And Abraham says, even if somebody was raised from the dead, they wouldn't listen. Now, what's unique about this story is fascinating. One, this story is only told in the Gospel of Luke. It's nowhere else. And what's fascinating about it is that he talks about if somebody were raised from the dead. You remember somebody Jesus raised from the dead? Lazarus. Now, this isn't that Lazarus. This is a parable. It's a story about things. But Obviously, Luke would have known who Lazarus was. And it's interesting that he chooses that name to be the person who came back from the dead. Now, what happened to Jesus after Lazarus was raised from the dead? Yeah, they killed him, right? Well, they didn't listen then, did they? even though Lazarus was raised from the dead. And in fact, even when Jesus was raised from the dead, what did they do to the apostles? They persecuted them, they arrested them, they stoned them, I mean, you know, they killed many of them. I mean, you know, that wasn't too good of a deal either. Even after the second one was raised from the dead. And so what the parable is talking about is certainly true. And it's, you know, you have to wonder why. I mean, wouldn't you think that if somebody were raised from the dead and came back and told us something, we'd go, Oh, that's kind of, now why wouldn't they listen? Even though somebody was raised from the dead, why, why do you think they didn't know? They wouldn't listen. Wasn't to their advantage? They don't trust, they didn't put their faith in that. They put their faith in the things of the world, things that they could tell. And in fact, 2,000 years later, we haven't changed a whole lot, have we? You know, we are told to not worry about what we will eat or drink or wear, for God will provide for us, but we tend to still worry about what we eat and drink and wear. You know, we're told that we should put first the kingdom of God, and then all those things should come. 
And yet that seems so hard for us to do. You know, even 2,000 years later, we still have trouble trusting that God means what He says. It becomes so much easier to trust in our own abilities and strengths. And you see, that's what the problem with wealth is. It's not that wealth in and of itself is bad. It's not. It's, it's just a thing. It's, but it's also seductive. And it becomes very easy for us to begin to trust it and believe that, that it will provide for us. You know, in our old age, it'll enable us to pay our bills. You know, it'll enable us to, to put our kids through college. It'll enable us to do the things that we need to do. And we end up becoming more dependent upon money than we are upon God. And when that happens, then everything gets out of kilter. And what's worse is that we begin to objectivize people. You know, one of the things um, that I love is the term riff. Anybody know what riff is? Reduction in force. Now, if your name is Joe and you're getting riffed, do you feel like, oh, it was a reduction in force, so that's okay. And do you ain't good at all? You're a person. You know, you got a family. But if we give it names like that, it doesn't quite make it so personal, does it? And it becomes so much easier for us to do. You know, and, and the bottom line becomes so much more important than the lives of the families who, employ, who are employed by us. I mean, one of the great tragedies of, of our modern day and, and the fast pace of our society is it's become so much easier for us to just, you know, use people and for people to use us. You know, and, and loyalty, responsibility, caring about the people that you work with, befriending them. That's a thing of the past. You know, when my dad went to work, he worked for the same factory for 27 years. You know, nowadays that's very rare. You know, actually, I've worked for the same church for 20 years. That's very rare too. The average tenure of most clergy is five years. Did you know that? Then they go somewhere else and subject themselves upon a new congregation who's unsuspecting. <laughs> and yet, it's because it becomes so much easier to treat people as objects rather than have to deal with them. Because one of the problems with people is that they're sinners. I mean, I like you all and all, but you all got problems. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I mean, you all really got problems. Come think of it, so do I. And, and if you live around each other long enough and get to know each other, you start realizing what those problems are. And some of them rub you the wrong way. But see, that's where a real relationship comes in. You can't have a real relationship with someone who, who you don't have to engage with or interact with or have any conflict with. It's only when we really have to deal with one another, faults and all, that we begin to see each other as real, genuine human beings who have real genuine gifts and real genuine faults. And it's only then that we develop the capacity to love. And our society is losing that. We're losing it rapidly. Because people are so mobile that they forget to spend time with each other. I mean, it's like I've been seeing a lot on the news and stuff this week that it's the internet and video games that are causing all the problems in our society with violence. Like, I don't know, I never saw a video game chase anybody down and shoot them, but... Um, it's not the internet. It's not the video games. Those are things. They just are. They're neither good nor bad. It's what we do with them that make them good or bad. 
And one of the things that happens to us a lot of times is we get on the internet and we say things in writing on the internet that we would never ever tell somebody to their face. I'll give you a hint. If you have something to say to somebody in an email, if it has any emotion in it, anything other than, than information, don't do it. I mean, it's really a bad idea. Because you're going to leave it up to them to try to figure out exactly what it is you mean by that. And the worst one is when people are trying to be sarcastic by email. That never works. And yet, we say things all the time because we think we're anonymous. And, and we get into trouble because of it. And it's not the medium that causes the problem. It's our decisions. Because somehow or other, we think that we are removed from it. You know, we hear all the time, you know, about scandals in our society, like with the Buckeyes when they got into trouble with the tattoos. You know, didn't it occur to them that you people are some of the most well-known people in all of Columbus? If you go and get something for money and all, which is against the rules, somebody might notice. Or politicians who have affairs. I mean, are they, are they serious? I mean, you're a public official. Everybody knows who you are. You know, why would you do that? That's just dumb. And yet, they seem to think, oh, no, that never happened to me. I'm above all that. And that's the danger of wealth, is that it seduces us into thinking that somehow or other we are impervious to the world around us and that we can provide for ourselves when in reality we can't. And it's not the wealth, it's our own pride that causes our downfall. And so what Jesus is trying to tell us is that, you know, even if somebody is raised from the dead, it won't necessarily change your pridefulness. Because in order to have that make a difference to you, you have to be humble. You have to be real with yourself. You have to acknowledge that, yes, I'm a genuine human being. I do some things that are really good. I do some things that are really not very good. And I'm made up of both of those. And I want to get better. And only when we approach life with that kind of humility, can we really begin to prepare for wealth? You know, one example of how we handle wealth today that fascinates me is that anybody, have you ever noticed that if baseball players, football players, basketball, any of the sports stars, whenever any of them gets the highest contract, you know, of anybody, you know, we're getting $10 million over the next three years or whatever, that it immediately becomes news. Everybody knows how much they make. And what's even more fascinating about it is that the amount of money that they're worth seems to be dependent upon how much the person before them got paid the most for. So that if you know, one person gets, you know, a football coach gets paid $10 million for three years, I should get paid $12 million for three years because I've won more games, which means I'm better than they are. But the sad part about that is, is if you begin to look at life that way, what are you basing your worth on? Hmm? No, it's not performance. It's how much money you get paid. Which means how much money I get paid determines my value. Really? That's interesting. Talk to a baby about that. You think their value is based on how much money they make? Probably not. That would be just crazy. And, and we end up basing our value on a commodity that... When we die, we go back to zero. We have nothing. So we are guaranteeing a downfall for ourselves. 
Now, what's even more interesting about the way we handle wealth is that if you make lots and lots of money, people know how much you're worth, how much you have. I mean, you look on Forbes, you know, 500 wealthiest people, and they'll tell you how much they're worth and all that. But if I were to walk up to one of you and say, how much do you make? What would your response be? I mean, at the very least, you'd be really uncomfortable probably, wouldn't you? <laughs> Why do you want to know? I mean, now, I have to say, I've never had that problem. My salary's posted on a bulletin board every month, and it has been for 20 years, so, or 30 years almost, but, so that doesn't bother me. But, but isn't it interesting that when we don't make a lot of money, we don't want anybody to know how much we make. But if we make more money than everybody else, we want everybody to know how much money we make. You know, what does that say about us? And why is it that it's nobody's business how much I make? Why, why do we care? we rank ourselves. We, we might think somebody will think I'm not worth it. Or we might think that they make that much. They shouldn't make that much. I, I don't make that much. Why don't I make that much? I mean, I've worked for companies for that said you weren't allowed to tell other people how much money you made. I always loved that one. I was like, yeah, lots of luck with that. But one thing I found about agreements is they're made to be broken. It's just a matter of, hey, can you get away with it? And, and so what we do, though, is we hide it because somehow or other we're, we're valuing ourselves based on money. And, and part of it is that we're afraid that people will somehow or other uh, judge us because of the amount of money we make, either because we make more than we ought to or should or more than even we think we're worth or because we don't make very much. And somebody might say, why are you bothering to do that? But the truth is, is shouldn't we really be glad if people make a lot of money? I mean, would we really like it if nobody made very much money? I mean, there are lots of countries in the world you can go to where nobody makes very much money. I mean, most of us aren't dying to go there. You know, in reality, when people make a lot of money, we ought to say, good for you. You know, remember, God's been generous to you. Be generous to God. You know, use it for good works. Do good things with it. We ought to encourage one another with it, not beat each other up over it. And yet somehow or other, we manage to do that. All because we base our value on this dollar figure, which really makes no sense at all, because it'll be gone. What Jesus is trying to tell us, and the whole story of the rich man and Lazarus is trying to tell us, is that our worth is not dependent upon our productivity or our money or our wealth or what kind of homes we live in or how, what kind of clothes we wear or what kind of cars we drive. None of those things ultimately make a difference. What makes a difference and what gives us our worth is being loved by God. You know, if you have a, a spouse who is a quadriplegic and is in bed, do you think of them, look, you're using up a lot of resources on the planet here. Why don't you just croak and get it out of here? You know, I mean, your debit ledger is not good. <laughs> you know, in the last three years of life, most healthcare dollars were spent. Well, by that logic, if really money is the value, then we should all say, okay, how many years? I got five years left. Okay, after two years, I'm out of here. I'm done. Because somehow or other, that, that would make me okay. But we don't do that. Why? Because we love them. You know, when we look at our nephews and nieces or our kids or our grandkids, do we look at them and say, hmm, 
I wonder what potential you have to, to make a lot of money. Because if you don't have a potential to make a lot of money, I don't know that I really want to invest so much time in you. You're not that valuable. We don't do that. So why do we begin to look at adults that way? You know, one of the wonderful things about little kids is they really don't care how much money you make. As far as they're concerned, everybody has lots of money. They don't know. I mean, compared to them, everybody does have lots of money. <laughs> and so give them a nickel. If they're three years old, that's a good deal. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's wonderful. 